Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. If you haven't already, you need it on your iPad, your telephone, or in a real-life Bible, turn to the first chapter of the book of Philippians. And while you're doing that, uh, let me remind you, Sunday school teachers, that your schedules and your outlines and stuff are on the table back in the atrium there. My first wife told me I was to say that, so I did it. So I'm off the hook there, I think. Uh, <clears throat> I had mentioned, and we've talked about it here uh, among ourselves some, about a hymn of invitation, and we intend to start using that as soon as you start bringing new people. And uh, and so I, I and I was told this morning that this is a different subject. What we think we want, well, before I get to it, but what I think we want to do initially is we want to sing the same song. We want to pick the invitation that we need want to use and use that same one for a while till we get so we know how to sing again. And that's a, an important issue. But I heard Andrew say that you, you, you're getting better, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. The text that has been assigned actually uh, starts at the 27th verse of the first chapter of the book of Philippians. I don't have time to tell you about the city of Philippi because it was an, it's an interesting history in itself because what Rome did in the Roman Empire is they would take a certain city and it would be designated as a little bit of Rome in that city. They had Roman law. They had everything was, was duplicated. And Philippi was one of those cities. And so uh, it was an interest, has an interesting history. The Apostle Paul had a strong influence there. The city itself, uh, the church itself in Philippi was, uh, was doing really well, but they had an outstanding problem. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to them because of that problem. There were a couple of women there, and, and you don't, you don't, he doesn't actually get to the problem until you get to the fourth chapter. And we'll talk about that later. And I've always, one lady is called Euodia, and the other is Syntyche. And I've always said if I had a name like that, I'd want to fight too. So, but they, these women had been really good workers with the Apostle Paul when he was there. And then when he left, they started fighting among themselves. And so the letter is written on that behalf. Amen. And uh, so... What we're looking at here is, is this starting with this verse, and this is where the title comes to your outline there from the 27th verse. Whatever happens, he said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he's talking about here our behavior as a Christian. Now, there is a historical background here that you really need to know before this, before this can make since the way he meant it. Israel was selected by God as a chosen people for no more than two or three reasons. 
one of the reasons everybody understands is because it was through Israel that the Messiah would ultimately come to save the world. But the other reason that is really important, and it has a tremendous influence on, on what we're talking about today, and should be, uh, on, for the whole church universal. When Israel was chosen, God told them, here is your assignment. You have the responsibility of showing the surrounding nations who I am by the life that you live. That's your, that's your assignment. And uh, he actually, in, in the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, you, 43rd chapter, I think, said, you are to be, and he used this term, a light to the nations. That's your assignment. That's what you're to do. Now, the problem developed when, and instead of Israel influencing the surrounding nations, over a period of time, the surrounding nations became a greater influence on Israel than Israel was on them. Actually, they, failed, they flunked their assignment. They just flat out got an F. They failed. Now, there were reasons, the excuses that they gave, and it, actually they kind of made sense when you, if you give them a fair hearing. What was, what was happening is Israel, while they had been in captivity in Egypt for 430 years, while they were there, they were primarily keepers of uh, cattle and, and, uh, had, and later on they were brick makers or masons. When they came to Israel, they were surrounded by people who were primarily farmers. And the next door neighbor would have a, a garden maybe the size of this room. And it would just be doing really, really well. They would have all kinds of good vegetables to eat. Israel over here didn't know how to raise a garden. So they go over and say, hey, how, how can I have a pretty garden like you have? And this is where the problem came. They said, well... Our God, a fertility God, blesses what we do, and so we have a good garden. And if you go down to the uh, Baal and the Astaroth worship center, and, and here's where the problem came. Because the, ba the, the, the worship of the Baals, the fertility gods, had a tradition. Every spring, they would send their daughters down to the fertility gods. And the idea was... People who would come would pay money to the priest to impregnate the daughters. And, the, and, and that was to be an indication of the fertility that would come back and bless their crops. Well, you, if you think about this for a little bit, you'll know where in time the church itself was infiltrated by, by the, we call them nuns and priests and so on and so forth. But they have a background there, and it's not a pretty one. The church has done some really silly things through the years and, uh, and requiring priests not to get married and, and uh, nuns and so on and so forth. Uh, that's a tragedy in my book because when God created man and put us here, what did he tell us to do? He said, you know, get married, replenish the earth. It's really kind of simple. 
I'll get letters now because this is going out, but, uh, but that's okay. If you're gonna, you have to live with what you say. Now, and so Israel was, became strongly influenced by the surrounding nations who were idol worshipers, fertility god worshipers. And these fertility gods were all over the, the Roman world. The, in Corinth, you had Aphrodite up on a hill there. They sent down as many as a thousand prostitutes into the city at night because a bunch of sailors were there, and you know how that went. And so they were being supported by prostitution. And, and the, the young men of Israel got caught up in that. And the first thing you know, their assignment of being a light or an influence on the surrounding nations was gone. It was just exactly the other way around. So finally, God got to the place where he said, Okay, Israel, you're done. This, you're no longer have the assignment. I'm going to give it to somebody else. And when, his, when Jesus came into the world, he selected his disciples. And while they were up in the northern Israel, there's a big old mountain there called Mount Hermon. It's 10,000 feet high. There's snow on it year-round. And that snow melts, and that mountain is, such, is composed of stuff so that it becomes a filter. And the water comes down from the snow and comes out at the bottom into kind of like an artesian well, and it's beautiful, clear, good drinking water. And that water becomes what is part of the headwater for the Jordan River. It goes down, and, and, and ultimately it gets to the Sea of Galilee, and then it goes down 90 miles in the uh, Jordan River and ends up in the Dead Sea if it gets there. But most of it now is siphoned off for, irrita for irrigation of, of crops. Well, it's when Jesus was sitting there with his disciples. There was a city there then, a town, uh, called Caesarea Philippi, named, or named after Caesar Philip, and they were his disciples were there, and it was, and that's when it's recorded in the eighteenth chapter of Matthew. That's what takes place there. He asked his disciples, "Who do people say I am?" And one of them spoke up and said, "Well, some people think that you're John the Baptist resurrected. Others think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets." And Jesus then pointed to them and said, "Look, I don't care what other people think." Who do you say that I am? And it was then that Peter spoke up and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, And upon your profession, of your, your statement that I am the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it. I'm going to establish a church. This church, then... We call it the replacement theory in, in theology is to replace Israel, but the assignment stays the same. I'm not going to change the assignment. You're to do the same thing that they were supposed to do. You're supposed to be a light to the world. You remember he used that in the fifth chapter of, uh, of his Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, a city set on a hill can't be hid. You're to be that city. You're to be a light in, the, in, the, in a dark world. You're to bring hope and light and truth to people by directing them toward the true and the living God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So the assignment is still the same. 
And it's spelled out specifically on exactly how we're to do it in the 28th chapter of Matthew. when he, It's called the Great Commission. When he said you're to go into all the world and to preach the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And you're to baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all the stuff that I've taught you. And if you do, you're to make disciples of them, which just means learners or followers. And, and, uh, and, and, and as long as you're doing that, my presence will stay with you in power and authority. I'll be with you to the end of the age, he said. You don't have to worry about my presence. I'll be there. You do your assignment, and I'll be there to support you and to encourage you and to protect you. And so the Apostle Paul takes that rather seriously, and his assignment was not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Your assignment is to take the gospel to the non-Jew, and he was really good at it. That's where we find ourselves today. Our assignment is to take who Jesus is into a world that really don't want to hear it. If you, want to, if you want to be successful in reaching out to people, I'll give you a hint. Find people in trouble. They're the ones who will listen. Otherwise, if they're prospering and doing well, they don't want to hear it. They really don't. Don't, don't mess up my life. I am comfortable, and I don't want to be just uncomfortable. And that's the world that we live in today. But I'm telling you, folks, you look for people in trouble, and you will find a listening ear. And when you start bringing people in here and filling the place up, we'll start having, giving them the opportunity at the conclusion of the service to accept Jesus. But we're not going to do that if everybody here is already saved. That's a waste of time. And uh, you would rather go to uh, Bob Evans and get lunch. So I, I know how that works. So what, I promise you, we'll do our part if you'll do yours. But we can't do ours if you don't do yours. Go get folks and bring them in. And, I, and when they get here, we'll try to make them, number one, welcomed. People are looking for a place where they're recognized and welcomed. This whole business of the pandemic has made people loners. And it's kind of messed with their heads a little bit, too. We need to be the most welcoming people on the face of the earth. I don't care what the sin that the people have. No one has sinned beyond what Jesus' capacity to forgive them. So don't say this guy's beyond help. Nobody is. So the Apostle Paul says, "Here's our now if you want to be effective in carrying out your assignment, he is saying, this is what you have to do. You have to live a life that when people see you, you have integrity. You're, you are consistent with what you say in the life that you live. And people really notice that. They really are, are very sensitive to, are you, because hypocritical, the church is being charged, and with some success, I might say, of being hypocritical. And we've got to get, we've got to be willing to listen to the truth, even though it may make us uncomfortable. We've got to listen to the truth. And then we have to try to make an honest effort to live a life of integrity with the gospel. And the Apostle Paul said it this way, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not there where he was yet. He said, for me to live is Christ. Well, that should be our goal if we're going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
That's our ultimate goal. And, and you say, well, I can never get there. No, now, wait a minute. You just denied the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. If that weren't possible, he'd never told you that. You and I have the capacity, if we seek the Lord on a consistent basis, that's, that's difficult but necessary. Seeking the Lord on a consistent basis. I want, with God's help, to be more like Jesus. I want to, with God's help, to be more like Jesus. That takes a conscious commitment on your part and my part. We, you see, when we start talking about Jesus, if we can see, if the person we're talking to can see the character qualities of Jesus in us, we have then legitimate influence on the person we're talking to. But if we're living like the devil and talking about Jesus, then we can say, the guy's not going to pay attention to us. And they shouldn't, really. So he's saying to the people here who are having, a, a, a couple of women are having a cat fight in their church. And that cat fight is taking all of the attention away from the effort of being a light to the, to the community for Jesus. So he's saying, get that thing fixed. Get that thing fixed. And so we, we've been through, our church has been through the trauma of having, having seen something like that happen. And the whole community is aware of where there is trouble in the church. People are talking about it. And it, and it just retards all of our efforts in order to spread the gospel to people. We, we want to do it, but we're not being effective because what they see among us and what they hear us say is, is not consistent. So he says to them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He goes on, and let's read a little further. He said, here's, if you do that, here's what will happen. And he, he says, it's a sign to the unbeliever that they need something they don't have. And it's a source of contentment to you because you know you're going to go to heaven when you die. You see, all of our evangelistic efforts are to get people to go to heaven. But God didn't save you just to get you to heaven. He saved you. Go going to heaven is a byproduct. It isn't the primary. The evangelists have made it the primary thrust. And that's all right to get people saved. But that's not why we're saved. We're saved to complete the assignment that we've been given. You go to school for the purpose of completing the assignment that the teacher gave you. Now, I don't know why they do it anymore or not, but I can tell you, where I grew up, because my mother was a school teacher, every evening after we got the chores done, we had cows to milk, we had coal to get in, we had chickens to feed, and you know, shut the hen house door, and blah, 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 and then we'd eat supper together. After we ate supper, there were three of us boys. One of us cleaned off the table, one of us washed the dishes, one of us dried the dishes, and Daddy put them away, and Mother watched. See, there's labor and there's management. And that's the way that worked. She cooked it. She expected us to do our part. And then afterwards, the table would be cleared, and the three of us boys would sit at the table until our homework was done. And, and we didn't get up from that table until she had checked it off. It was done. You can go to bed now. That's the way it was done. We completed our assignment. The results were pretty impressive on paper. Our report cards looked really pretty good. And, and I don't think it would have had not she had that system of com you complete your assignments. 
we have been given an assignment as the body of Christ, the church. And our, our deal is, our assignment is, and we will be judged. Not by whether we're going to get to heaven or not. That was taken care of. That's, that's, a, that's a, a, a locked up deal. Once you become a Christian, you're adopted into God's family. And that's, that's not, and so what are you going to do? It's like some people when they retire, they sit down and, and, in a rocking chair and wait till they die. <laughs> they ain't living, folks. That's just preparing to die. Fully on that. You know, I'm, I'm telling you guys in particular, women are better at this than men because they still have the housework they like to fill around with and do. But men will too often go to a rock and play a little golf and then, get, and then they get fatter than a, than a pig ready for slaughter and wait to die. That's, that's not living, folks. That's not living. And God didn't save you just to get you to heaven. He saved you and he gave you the presence of his, his presence with you in order for you to have the courage and the capacity to go out and lead other people to Jesus and let them know who he is. You've been empowered to do that and you've been given it. So he says, and there's some things then in order for you to be able to be impressive in, your, in, in carrying out your assignment, there's some things and you can follow this in your outline, there's some things you just have to stay away from. You have to stay away from it. And here it's in, in verse 2, or in chapter 2, he starts off and saying, if you have any, well, well I need to stop and give you a, a little uh, lesson. If you notice here in, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 2, there's a whole bunch of ifs. Now, I've told you this before, but repetition is the key to learning. In the New Testament, there are four words for if. If introduces what's called a conditional clause. If has four different, th four different meanings and four different spellings. First, second, third, and fourth class condition. First class condition says, if this is true, and it is. Second class condition says, if it is true, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. You get to what's called an optative mode. And then next one, if this is true, and it probably is not. And the last one, if this is true, and it definitely is not. All of those shades of meaning are there in the, for the word that is translated in English, if. These words here are all first class condition. If it is true, and it is. Now let's read it. He said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ and being a Christian, and you do. If any comfort from his love, and you do. If any fellowship with the Spirit, and you do have that. If any endless, any tenderness and compassion from God and to each other, and you do. Then make my joy complete, he said, by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in the spirit and purpose. Do nothing out, and here's what you have to avoid. Do nothing out of am selfish ambition. Now we need to stop there just for a minute. Because all of us are born selfish and get worse as we grow up. And so the biggest problem we have in getting along with each other is overcoming our own selfishness. See, there is a philosophy that's very dominant in our world today. It's called humanism. Humanism puts the individual in the center of everything, and everything else rotates around it. The Christian says, the Christian philosophy is, God 
as revealed in Jesus Christ is in the center of things and we're to rotate around that. And whenever we put ourselves in the center of things and saying, you know, I'm the one who here really counts. Everybody should cater to me. And what I want should be supreme, blah, all that kind of nonsense. Well, the, the result is division and heartache and divorce and church splits and everything else. It's all related into selfish ambition. And the other that goes along with it, he said, you need to fight this and overcome it. And you see, it, it's a lifelong struggle if you're honest. Now, Alice Kay and I have been married 63 years, come August the 9th. Yeah, you can send us presents. Uh, the, um, I don't know what a 63-year present is, but uh, whatever it is. Anyway, I, I'll be happy with the supper with somewhere. But as we've gotten older, getting along with each other in, almost all the time is really kind of easy. We know what the other... Heck, she finishes my sentences. It's kind of embarrassing, but it, it happens every once in a while. And, and uh, you, you know, that's when you like to kind of backhand her, but you don't. But you, you get to the place where uh, those kind of things... You, you, you know, it's, it's not a struggle. It really isn't. But when you first start off a marriage, or if kids are growing up, and you, or if you've got teenagers... Teenager thinks that what he's, he's, he knows everything. He's right in the middle of things. Everything's a circle around him. You know, you go to my ball games. You give me the car that I want. You let me have the keys to the car when I want it. You give me a credit card. You... The war begins. And um, that's that, that, because what, by nature, just by nature. He's not pretending to be something he isn't. By nature, he puts himself in the center of everything, and he expects people to gravitate around him. That's what happened when man fell and became a selfish jerk. Now, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that comes into our life is the only one who has enough power. Because, you know, what daddies do with their, with their teenage boys. You, you know, we saddle, I can remember my oldest boy came home. He'd, been, he'd been, had a little nip or something, and I could smell it on his breath. He came home late after curfew. And, uh, and I was standing there, you know, in my underwear just with a real image of... of strength and I mean Charlie Atlas type you know standing there waiting for him to come in he came in the door you know, and we had a confrontation and he was standing there with his fist double like this you know da, 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 da. and I, I said I, and I told him I said now Greg here's the way this is you're to give your best shot and then after you get that done, done I'm just going to mop up the floor with you and uh, he said, well, I'll call children's services. I said, you call them because I'll be guilty by the time they get here. And that's the way it's going to be. And, and about that time, his lower lip started quivering. I knew the battle was over so I could get kind of brave because he could have whooped me on the spot. He really could. You know? And his lower lip started quivering. And, and, and he said, Dad, I don't think I could hit you. I said, I was depending on that. Now, <laughs> you, you get your butt up to bed and let's not let this happen again. Those confrontations take place. In most, in most homes, we don't like to talk about it. I don't care anymore. We don't like to talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing. But it's common among us because all of us are born selfish and we get worse as we go until God comes into our life. 
And then the power of the Holy Spirit, the only one capable of doing it, the power of the Holy Spirit helps us to overcome that selfish nature, that vain, uh, as I wrote down there, that selfish ambition and, and vain deceit, empty deceit, conceit, and replaces that with the concept of saying, you know, and we finally get to the place as we grow older that the care, that the care and the welfare of our parents are more important than our own lives. That can only, that, that's the way you see, and, and the beauty of it is if you can start with our younger folks and get the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, it brings some peace and contentment to a family. It doesn't all go away, but it certainly improves. These are, and then if you were to go back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, 18th chapter of Leviticus, you'll see that there is a list of things that we shouldn't do. That particular chapter deals with sexual sins, but you and I both know the primary problem today is related, is, is no different than it ever was. The sins that, that really disturb everything is directly related to sex, power, and money. Sex, power, and money. They're all kind of interrelated and, and the source of almost all the problems that we come to. When we're teenagers with our parents, it's power and money. And then the sex thing comes, comes along later. So he said, don't do any of these things. And, and Moses was directly commanded by God to address the subject. In the 18th chapter of, of, of Leviticus, starting at verse 1, here's the way it reads. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. Not these fertility gods. I'm the Lord your God. Put, I'm to be in the middle of things and things are to rotate around me. And I don't like competition. You must not do as they do in Egypt. That's where they had been for 430. Where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That's where they're living now with all of those pagan gods around them. He said, you know, don't follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the center of things. If you want your, your, your lives to be blessed, if you want peace and tranquility among yourselves, put me in the center of things. See, that's the key to a marriage. That's the key to any relationship. You got a man, you have a spoiled girl and, and a spoiled boy that thinks more about sex than to do anything else, especially the boys. And they come into what you call marriage. And now the struggle begins between them, either obvious or not so obvious, but it's there, of who's going to run this place. Now, you may not want to admit that, but that's the way it is. And sooner or later, one of them becomes dominant. And often, the loser... Files for divorce. But you see, the Bible says, if you do it my way, the man is designated as the head of the house. He's the rooster. And the woman is there as his helpmate. And they become a team with God in the middle of things. And as a result of that, there's tranquility in the home, an agreement upon getting things done, and it works really, really good. Now, 
there are times in, in our home, Alice Kay, has, she has decreed that I'm the head of the household. And that's the way it really should be. She said, and, 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 and almost everything she will ask me and not hesitate to do whatever until she asks what I think and we go from there. Now, there are times, though, when the head of the household, if he's smart, will put himself under someone else's authority. When we go to the kitchen and we have company, Patrick and Eddie like to come eat Alice Kay's cooking. In fact, they've said if we get enough money, we're coming back, bringing our wives back to the States and teach them how to cook. She can teach them how to cook because they love to show up and eat her cooking. And, and, and they're kind of smart when it comes to that. I agree with them. But uh, I'm perfectly content when she says, you know, fill up the, the glasses with uh, ice for the Kool-Aid or whatever they're drinking and put the plates out. I'll get the plates out and put them out. What, in the kitchen, I don't want to learn how to cook. I have no desire to learn how to cook. I'm perfectly willing to submit to her authority and to help her get that done. Hallelujah. Keep on cooking, babe. You know. I don't want to interfere. And, and so it's, it's a smart thing, even though you have the authority to say, the heck with that, I'm going to sit in a rocking chair and let you do it. That's kind of dumb, but you can do that. And a lot of men do. That's her job. Well, okay. Those chickens come back to roost. But you see, when we do it God's way, as a general rule, so because what he's saying here, instead of being conceited and selfish, you should be humble. Now, we have a tendency to misunderstand the word humility. Miss Frances, who helped us start the church here, she was a wonderful old lady. She used to say in a real southern accent, she was from Bessemer, Alabama. She'd say, you know, she'd say, you know, I feel so humble. Well, you don't feel humble. Humble isn't a feeling. Humility is something you do. But I wasn't going to correct her. I just let her talk. But the truth of the matter is, when you look here at the text, it's very obvious that humility is not something that you just feel. What does he go ahead and say? He says, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You see, the time comes when you're, and that better means putting, allowing that person to be over you rather than you insisting on being over them. There are times when you should submit yourself to someone else who is better at it. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now he's going to say, now if you want an illustration of humility, I'm going to give it to you. Keep on reading. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being the very nature of God. In heaven, he was God. In the, and, and so what did he do? He didn't consider the equality with the Father as something to be hung on to if he could let go of it put on skin and come to earth and help people. And that's exactly what he did. He, 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 it says this, he did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to or grasp, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the likeness of a human being, and found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to, even to death. 
Jesus volunteered to step down out of heaven and give up his place of perfect authority and become a human being because we needed it. We were in a pickle. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and couldn't do a stinking thing about it. And so God said, Jesus is the one who said, here, I can fix this, but I have to give up my position and step down to a lower position in order to carry out what is necessary for man to be forgiven. That's called humility. That is the stepping down, not insisting that you be the center of attention. Because we can't get along with each other as long as we demand that. He said, and what will happen? If we do that, there is a blessing that goes with it. The blessing is, it's a promise from God. He will elevate those who have volunteered to, to step down. And he does it, the way, and he said, I'm going to use Jesus as an illustration. He said, therefore, this is starting in verse 9, chapter 2. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name. That, it, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And, e and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So God says to Jesus, you carry out your assignment and I'm going to elevate you to the highest position in all the universe. Now what Paul is saying is, you who are willing, you who are willing to, to be humble for the purpose of unity in the body of Christ, to get along with people, instead of being demanding and overbearing, trying to get along with people, speaking the truth, but speaking it in love, God has promised to give us something that we haven't even the capacity to understand yet. It will be interesting to see, won't it, when we get to heaven, the glory that he has promised to give those who have lived obedient lives to him. How is he going to take people who have submitted themselves to him and to the benefit of each other. If stepping down will benefit someone else, we're to do that. Even unto death, Jesus did. And, and he says, and it's interesting, he puts a little tough one on it in verse 14. And he said, and do whatever is necessary that to benefit each other without arguing and complaining. And the church has a horrible history here. I've seen churches almost divide over the, the color of carpeting in the nursery. Babies are going to pee on the carpet. It doesn't make any difference what color it is. And you're going to have to clean it up. So what difference does it make? And yet, I've seen churches want to split over it. Because someone wanted to be called the shots. We've got to, and the Apostle Paul is saying, you've got to get over that if you're going to have the integrity to be successful in the assignment that I've given to you to let other people know who Jesus is. To say that it's easy just isn't true. An attitude like Jesus that can only come 
It can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit living in our life. Now, he says something here that people need to talk about. He says, what I want you to do is to be holy. Now, there's a horrible... The vision of holiness today in our culture is awful, isn't it? We sometimes think that holiness is a woman piling her hair on top of her head till you can't hardly reach the top of it, wearing a dress that covers her ankles. In other words, a conscious effort to be as ugly as you can. And now you're, then you're holy. I see, and I don't believe that. I, I don't have, give that a minute's thought. That's not holiness. That's stupidity. You know, paint the barn. Look nice. The old rooster likes to run around with a pretty hen. Do it. It's okay. You know? And we, and we have to learn that there's some common sense here somewhere. In order, we want Christ to be seen in us as the attractive person that he really is. And that should be our goal. And then when we go to people and invite them to come to church, you will be shocked how quick they show up. And then you need to introduce them around, make people, get people. We have a, we have a little party, this pool party this afternoon, I think Andrew mentioned for uh, the kids in the ark in the village. And it really isn't as important for the children as it is for their parents. Their parents to get to know each other because a time comes when parents need to be able to help each other. Give each other a little kid gets into some trouble, other parents can be an encouragement and help out. When I was raising our hoodlums, Dale Cox came to our house and got Brian and put him in the car and took him out through the country and had to talk. I never did find out what they talked about. It didn't work, but it was a heck of a good try, you know. <laughs> so we need each other, and especially when we're raising our kids. And the other time that we really need each other is when sickness and death finally shows up. You know, we've got people in the hospital now, and um, we, they need to know we love them and pray for them. Doug Booth, has, is, Susie's over there with him now, and, and uh, Dee has had all kinds of problems. They both have fluid building up around their, their heart that needs to be removed, and it's scary. Start punching needles in close to the heart, and, and we need to be praying for them, and they need to know that we love them. Holiness in the Bible, you see, has very little to do with dress. It has more to do with love than anything. The most important thing that any Christian can have is to be known as a loving person. The Apostle Paul wrote a whole chapter, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he said there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is what? Love. Love is not a feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is stepping out and doing what needs to be done, even if it costs you something or significant amount. Love is putting the other person's need above your own selfish desires. Now, I could tell some stories about that that's taken place here at church that I haven't been given permission to. I hope someday I am because people need to give you permission to talk about personal stuff like that. But I have, in, even in the last year, seen people go way beyond what anybody ever dreamed of in order to help somebody else. And I'm telling you, then if you want a warm, fuzzy feeling, you sure get it then. So the, the Bible is, is very clear. He says, I want you guys to be shining stars. Now, every time I think about that, I have some selfish things. I, I can remember, I can actually remember when I was a star. 
And that's difficult. And I was more of a star than I was the older I get. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> when you look back and you say, I can remember the, year, the, the time that we won the regional tournament, went to the state tournament in Lexington, playing the state tournament. Every dream of a kid in Kentucky growing up playing basketball. And we played Bourbon County High School, and, and we beat them. And, and our, our people poured down out of the stands, and I found myself being carried on the shoulders of a giant. This great old big guy. He was kind of, and I finally looked down to see who it was. It was my old principal. He was a great big guy. Six foot, about five, weighed about 250 or 60 pounds, and he wasn't very fat. World War II captain in artillery. He even named his kid after me. He's a CPA in, in Indianapolis. God says, you carry out your assignment. You do what I've asked you to do. Oh, you'll go to heaven all right, but that's not the great need. The great need right now is to let people know who Jesus is. That's the great need. Please do it well. And I don't know how he's going to do it. But he says, in my book, you'll be a shining star. That's kind of neat coming from God. Here's what he says. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. You want to be a star in the eyes of God. Work at your assignment. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, the clarity with which you've given us the assignment of letting people know who Jesus is. Promise that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can develop an attitude that supports our efforts to complete our assignment. Bless our congregation. Bless the churches in our community. Help us, O oh Lord, to put you in the center of everything and not be apologetic about it. We ask for you to dismiss us now to our homes with your richest favor. Bless our homes. Bless our little children. Help us, O oh Lord, to be what you want us to be is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.